What we want to do with this talk is go more into the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and look for what creation is telling us, the message of creation right through the Bible and what its significance really is and how it may be being almost certainly in some circles being overlooked today. So let's just start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, it's good to be here and um, spending time in your word, the spirit of prophecy and sharing uh, experiences and truths. We do pray that you will speak through me. May um, you be lifted up and may we see the importance of the truths for our time today. May there be principles that we can apply to each of our lives personally. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turning to Acts 17, we're taking up the story in the early church in the time of Paul. And Paul, as we know, was a, he was a great evangelist with a passion for just reaching the world, particularly those outside of his Jewish uh, people. And in Acts 17, it starts off at 16, and in, my, in, in verse 16, and my Bible is entitled, Paul at Athens. And Paul is stirred up while he's at Athens. And it says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, I've traveled a little bit in this world and I believe I've been to cities that are probably almost wholly given to idolatry. And what comes to mind is Frankfurt. It wasn't that long till I was in Frankfurt. And I thought Frankfurt seemed like it was pretty dedicated to idolatry. Not long ago, I was in San Francisco. Uh, I've been in Paris and London. And again, these are places that are pretty well given to idolatry, really. But God tells us to live in the country because... I can't imagine living in these places uh, with uh, that sort of environment, surrounded by idolatry. And interestingly, he, in verse 17, he talks about he was disputing in the synagogue with the Jews. He was talking to the Jews and the devout persons in the market daily with them that met him. So he's speaking to the Jews, but he's reaching out to the pagan peoples. He wants the people to understand about Jesus. And in verse 18, interesting, there's a lot of parallels for us today. In verse 18, it said, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I got some ideas of this when I was ta about this sermon talking to you, this, this presentation with Don McIntosh, who we sat down and we were actually, when all this thing blew up about evolution some time ago. And our mind goes back to Paul, who he goes and he talks to these pagan people and he encounters the Stoics and the Epicureans. Who are these people that Paul was talking to? How, what was the mindset of these people back then? So we go to Wikipedia, right, and look up Stoicism and Epicureans. And this is what it says about Stoics. It's the culture of ancient Greece 
And in the context of the Greek religion, and it, they say historically prior to Christianity, that was before the time of Christ, Stoicism was naturally regarded by the fathers of the church as a pagan philosophy. So, we, you know, there Paul is there in a pagan place. It says, the, uh, and then it um, talks about Stoicism's pantheism, where God is never fully transcendent, but always imminent. It says, God, listen to this, God as the world-creating entity is personalized in Christian in, in the Christian religion, it's saying, but Stoicism equates God with the totality of the universe. Okay, the Stoics. Also, Stoicism, unlike Christianity, uh, it's, it says there's no beginning or end to the universe and no continued individual existence beyond death. So they don't see, they don't really see a uh, an individual God, God's sort of, it's kind of pantheism, God's everywhere all throughout the universe. There's kind of no beginning or no end to the universe and there's nothing beyond death. Well, that sounds a little familiar today, doesn't it? How about the Epicureans? They believed in the existence of gods, but they, it says here, but they believed that the gods were made of atoms just like everything else and that they were too far away from the earth to have any interest in what man was doing. It sounds kind of like theistic evolution, doesn't it? Uh, and it sort of didn't do any good to pray or offer sacrifices. They, they believed that the gods did not create the universe, nor did they inflict punishment or bestow blessings on anyone. So there's no judgment, no creation, there's no kind of no moral values. It says Epicureans rejected immortality and mysticism. They kind of believed in a soul, but they suggested this was mortal like the body. And they also rejected any possibility of an afterlife. So here we have Paul reaching these pagan peoples, and they're essentially evolutionists, just like today. Not a lot of difference. I mean, what we're seeing in evolution today is essentially you know, Greek philosophies, the same mindset that we see there all those time, all that long ago, a couple thousand years in the time of Paul. So what did Paul do to try to reach them? So he's trying to debate and talk to these Epicureans and the Stoics. And in verse uh, 23 and 24, he's trying, how can I reach their hearts, he says. And he, and he looks and he's, and he's preaching to him. He says, for as I pass by and behold your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. He's using any opportunity. There's, a, there's an altar, the unknown God. He's saying, this is the God I'm telling you about. Now, what did he explain to them was this unknown God, the true God? In verse 24 of Acts 17, he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He points these mystic evolutionists to a creator God. He said, this is the God you don't know about. This is the true God. This is the God that created everything. He's the creator God. He starts with that foundation. Verse 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. And uh, in verse 30, and he says that, you know, times of ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So he starts to bring him the gospel, right? You need to repent. And 
I like verse 31, where he says, Because he has appointed a day in righteousness by which man whom hath, uh, by that man whom he has ordained, where he has given assurance unto all men that he has raised him from the dead. And uh, so he, he talks about uh, times when they were ignorant, and he talks about a day in which God is going to judge the world. He sounds like a good Seventh-day Adventist, doesn't he? He's reaching them with the gospel. He points them to the foundation of God as being the creator God. He says, look, there's going to be a time when this creator God is going to judge the world, and therefore you need to repent. And what happened in 32? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So, you know, some of them didn't work. This guy's crazy, you know. Resurrection from the dead. Others, their hearts were pricked and they thought, you know, we need to, hear, we need to learn more about this. And we got these two groups of people. We have the two groups of people back then, and we've got the two groups of people today. The group, and that group of people is backslidden Christians. Well, two, two, there are two groups, and that was Paul was speaking to. And we are unfaithful Christians, and it's just outright pagans. And in 1 Corinthians 1.23, again, Paul is saying, but we cre preach Christ crucified, and unto the Jews it's a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. So the Jews knew who Jesus was, and they were guilty of killing him, but to the pagans it was just foolishness. I mean, they didn't know anything about that. So we got those two groups of people, some that just say, you know, it's a stumbling block and they don't want to know about it, and to others it's just outright foolishness. As I was thinking, I was talking to somebody last night, and I think I'll touch on this at morning manna. As a young person, perhaps in a university setting, and as you're interacting with your friends, you can reach people's hearts because young people's hearts are open to the truth and young people have a great understanding of fairness and, and uh, right and wrong and, uh, and moral values. But there's something that happens after you go through an undergraduate course and you go through a course of graduate study and then you become a working scientist and you start publishing these papers and become part of that boys club that I talked about that you develop a bias and your heart is almost unreachable. I mean almost, in many cases, unreachable. You, if we're going to reach people, we've got to reach young people. The time you get to these hardcore scientists, now of course the gospel is open to everyone and people change, but it's really tough. These guys uh, have been just indoctrinated with these basically Greek paganism with evolution that it's very hard to reach them. We're just, we're just on different, as Emmanuel Beck was saying, we're just on completely different platforms reaching them. You know, today we're faced with this inundation of evolution. It just keeps coming up. Everywhere we go, we run into it. And it's interesting, when I was looking through textbooks, when I took on this job and I had to teach a first-year biology class, it had been years. I'd been a researcher and ecologist for many years. I hadn't even looked at textbooks. That wasn't part of what I was doing. And suddenly I began to start browsing through textbooks and getting them sent to me, and I was shocked what had happened in the best part of 30 years, 20 to 30 years since I had gone through education at my undergraduate level. And the, the blatant uh, philosophies that they were put, are putting in these textbooks are, are shocked. I was shocked because I hadn't sort of seen one for a while, and I couldn't believe 
how, how blatant and how they've, in some books, it's just infused through everything. And you're gonna find that no matter what you do. If you're, if you're studying English, if you're studying psychology, if you're studying, Engl uh, if you're studying history, if you're studying biology, well, maybe some of the sciences won't be as bad, chemistry perhaps. Certainly there's aspects in physics where you're getting all these pagan philosophies bombarded. It's, it's tough. Our young people need to be uh, on guard and to reach out to those that are struggling with these things. And in 1 Corinthians 1.20, it says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, we, you know, we, we may be thought odd by the world, and, and that's probably a normal reaction from the world, as these, as these Greeks did with Paul. They thought, who is this guy? He's just babbling. Who, just on a, different, a completely different platform. Just a completely different platform. But that's not surprising, because God... The wisdom of the world, you know, it's just foolishness. It's foolishness with God. Likewise, the world sees God's things in a foolish light. There's just, they often don't, they just can't connect. And in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So I can't help but thinking that creation is becoming a forgotten pillar. I see creation as an important pillar of all our beliefs. It's right there. It supports everything we stand on. I mean, if you start wavering with your belief in creation and God that was a personal God who created the earth, uh, as it says in the Bible, you begin to doubt God as a personal savior and what God is doing in a sanctuary in heaven. It's just every one of our doctrines are based, it's no wonder, it's no wonder that we see it under attack. Why, as a Seventh-day Adventist people, this should even be an issue, is really beyond me. I just, I don't understand the mindset of my colleagues that are out there. Because we go right back to the beginning of the Bible. You turn to Genesis 1, verse 1, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, the very first sentence in the Bible gives us the foundation, the very first sentence. If you didn't go any further than that, you have an idea of where we came from. And then there's two chapters. Now, if you go away and you want to do some reading in the Spirit of Prophecy, I encourage my students to do this. There's two chapters I love because they're so relevant. And they're in Patriarchs and Prophets. One is called The Creation, and one is called The Literal Week. Two chapters, nice reading. Uh, I don't know what number they are. I don't have that down. Do I have that in my notes? I don't have that. So what's the one is the creation and one is the literal week. The literal week is a few chapters on. I think creation is the second one. I think the first chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets talks about sin entering the world and then she gets into the creation. Three or four chapters on. Two and nine. Two and nine. Okay, so the literal week is quite a ways on. Two and nine. Thanks for that. Chapter 2, chapter 9, good reading. If you read those two chapters, you're secure from all this nonsense that's going around. That will give, if you read those, you believe what she's saying and take them on board, you're guarded against a lot of stuff going on. And back when the President Ted Wilson was asking to read Vice, Creation and Belief, uh -huh. she said, just read the title of chapter 9. Right, okay. The literal week. Yeah, I'll share a few. Yeah, you're right. You don't have to read very far. I actually, I missed that. Just read the title. It's a literal week. So we just need to be 
well-founded. And if I read the opening text, she starts the chapter on creation with a few Bible texts, strong texts. Page 44 it is. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake, and it was. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalms 33, 6 and 9. He laid the foundations of the earth. That was Psalms 33. Then it says, she said, he laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Psalms 104, 5. He creates the world in six literal days. He stops and he rests and he creates the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is an integral connection to creation. So us as Seventh-day Adventists who honor and, and, and the Sabbath... I mean, creation is part of that whole package. Uh, how we're getting off track that you can be a Sabbath keeper and forget creation, it, it, it does not make sense. You know, there's a lot of good literature out there. I've read, uh, I've got into read, read a little bit, and there's just a whole bunch of stuff coming out. And I love uh, Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box. Now, I didn't realize when I was reading that book that the guy's not even a believer. I didn't know that. I mean, that makes it even more powerful. And I, you know, I haven't read the whole book, but I was reading uh, through a lot of it. And I can realize that the battles are going to be waging in the field, uh, raging in the fields of molecular biology. Because that's, you know, the, as I was sharing with endosymbiosis, they say, well, this just kind of popped into the cell and it kind of changed over time. When you get to the molecular level, and I'm not a molecular biologist, it's absolutely incredible. The more and more detail you look at, the incredible intricacy and interconnected and biochemical pathways that there are. It's phenomenal. I mean, you have to have a great leap of faith to believe in how some of this stuff works if it's just kind of happened. I mean, just one of the bacterial flagella. I mean, it's just amazing. You've got this incredible cell wall, and you've got this essentially a miniature outboard motor that just spins. This little, it spins around at a molecular level, and it's all run at a, and fueled at a molecular level. So you've got these little bacteria buzzing along with these little outboard motors. And then if you look at his book in the complexity in the steps of blood clotting, I mean, it's just amazing. It's just like, you know, steps and all this goes into that. And, he, and you try to read as he's explaining each of the steps as a biochemist, and you think, if one of those steps didn't work, if it's missing, the whole thing clots up, you know, and you just got a dead organism. Or if something's not quite in where it should be, you bleed to death. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So. The evidence is out there. We don't have to you know, be accused of just blindly believing something in faith. It's the ones in evolution that believe, first of all, that it's spontaneous generation, that a life arose out of nothing, which is absolutely against biological principles. I mean, you have to go there, because where else do you start? And then to see these complex steps, it strengthens my faith incredibly. It doesn't weaken my faith you, at all. You go mo look at more and more in this detail at the biochemical level, and they're unlocking the genetic code and all the stuff that's going on. You think, this is incredible stuff. It really is incredible. Um, it really is incredible. So uh, there's, and the, the websites are full of it, uh, information that you can research, and you bring up the websites and the books. And so there's a lot of information that we can, that you can reach your friends if they, need, if they need, I don't need the information because I, I know where I stand. I've seen the miracles of God working in my life. I know he's changed my life. I don't need in, any information to, to prove God. But there are people that might need that. And we can come to them and we don't have to, to feel ignorant. We can have a solid, strong foundation. 
patriarchs and prophets on page 44 and 45 were told here, and she's talking about creation, here is clearly set forth the origin of the human race. And the divine record is so plainly stated that there is no occasion for erroneous conclusions. No occasion. It's so clear, it's so clearly stated, there's no need to, to be confused. God created man in his own image. Here is no mystery. There is no ground for the supposition that man was evolved by slow degrees of development from the lower forms of animal or vegetable life. Such teaching lowers the great work of the creator to the level of man's narrow earthly conceptions. She's hitting creation arose at the very time when our church was getting going. And she, and she just goes on to say that men are so intent about excluding God that they you know, come up with these things because they want to get rid of God. I mean, they have to if they don't want to believe in God. Then she goes on to say later on page 45, the genealogy of our, of our race as given by inspiration traces back its origin not to a line of developing germs, mollusks, and quadrupeds, but to the great creator. Though formed from the dust, Adam was the son of God. So the moral implications of understanding a correct our, our origins correctly are huge. I mean, if we don't, we don't have any morals. We don't have any right. And I guess that's our postmodern age. What about the modern times? And we'll move into that shortly. And we read the fourth commandment in Exodus 28 to 11, where within the Sabbath commandment, right within there, God reminds us that he's the creator. For in six days, the God made heaven and earth, all of that right in with the Sabbath commandment. So we as a Sabbath-keeping people should be the strongest Sabbath, the strongest uh, supporters of creation. So the devil's really pulled a swift one where he's, people are con getting confused. We're told in Patriarchs and Prophets 48 that God designs that the Sabbath shall direct the minds of men to the contemplation of his created works. Nature speaks to their senses, declaring that there is a living God, the creator, the supreme ruler of all. So you look to nature and you know we got God's word, we got the spirit of prophecy and you can go to nature and they reveal the creator. Even even the way the earth is now, you know, with its with its 6000 years of sin and and the degradation, you can still see the hand of the creator there in creation. And that's why, you know, we have this wonderful location up here in the mountains and the trees and every window you look out, you can see a tree. And now when I'm lecturing, I can think of that, well, you know, you look out and the most common substance in the earth is cellulose. There it is, you know, we're surrounded by cellulose, you know, and uh, it just depends how you look at it. And there it is, living things all around us, incredible things going on. Each of those leaves are carrying on photosynthesis with their chloroplasts and incredible biochemical pathways are going on and they're just sitting there in the sunshine. We don't, we don't think about it, but there's incredible biochemical pathways going on all around us. Now we come down to the end of time where God raises a last day people because uh, step by step since the Reformation, God keeps revealing more and more truth uh, as, we, as we enter the end of time. And, and God raises up a last day message and we can go there in Revelation 10 where we have the description. It's incredible. Revelation 10 basically describes the raising up of this last day group of people. It starts with the Millerite people, which gradually moved into the Seventh-day Adventist church. Chapter 10, in verse 1, it says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, 
clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Here's this global message going out. And he cried with a loud voice, as a lion roareth, and when he cried, seven thunders ordered, uttered their voices. And it goes on to say that. If we move ahead, in verse 5, it says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. And look at what the angel said. This is when he's ushering in the 1844 movement that they were proclaiming the world was going to end and Christ was going to come. And he swore to him that liveth forever and ever. Who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things that which are therein that there should be time no longer. Now just, just get the significance of this. Now you may have, thought, you may have not thought about this. Here is, the, is God's last day people. He, he hands them a special message and that special message is that there was, is the end of prophetic time. 1844 is the last prophetic prophecy in the Bible, right? It ended. Of course, the people back there thought Jesus was coming. They misinterpreted it. But the very foundation of that message was that God was creator. They were going to the world, and the message was from him who created the heaven and the earth and the sea. So guys like me, like marine biologists, have a job, right? And all these things in the world were created. And in verse 9, it's specifically about that 1844 Millerite movement. And I went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book, out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. As soon as I had eaten, eaten it, my belly was bitter. They were proclaiming the second coming of Jesus. It was a sweet message. Families gathered together. They were waiting, October 22, 1844. They were watching the horizon, watching for Jesus to come. And he didn't come. And it was a bitter experience that they had to go through. And then, of course, on came the sanctuary message. And then the next verse, and then, then they saw themselves in the next verse when he said, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So they got disappointed. It was a bitter experience. They, 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 they thought Jesus was coming. And it was a bitter experience. And he didn't come. And they realized, No, your work isn't over yet. But that very message was based on the creator God, the creator of all things. That's where we started. That was the original pillar. Interesting, interesting. If you look at uh, man, one manuscript, manuscript release, page 99, it says, she tells us that the mighty angel who instructed John was no less a personage than Jesus Christ. So that was Jesus presenting that message. And she says later on that Satan united with evil men will deceive, oh, Satan, she's talking about the future, united with evil, will deceive the whole world and the churches who receive not the love of the truth. But the mighty angel demands attention. He cries with a loud voice. He is to show the power and authority of his voice to those who have united with Satan to oppose the truth. So, you know, that, that was relevant back then and even today. And again, in manuscript, one manuscript released, page 100, when it says there's time no longer, and we, we mentioned that, she said, this time which the angel declares with a solemn oath is not the end of the world's history, 
neither of probationary time, but of prophetic time which pre should precede the advent of our Lord. This is a message that's going out and Jesus is about to come back. And suddenly we as a people have lost the vision. And we're going after idolatrous beliefs and beginning to stumble in darkness. And how did we get there? How did we do it? And then we go to Revelation 4. Okay, so that's where we started as the Millerite people. And then the movement grew. Ellen White began to have, when well, she had her first vision there, when she saw the people walking to heaven on that path up above her, and somehow they followed Jesus, and other, was one, one, other ones that turned their eyes, you know, fell off the path. And, and some kept going, and others were falling by the way. And it was the Advent movement, and it began to grow there, right back at the beginning. And then as we began to gain momentum, and by the way, they were all young people. Every one of them. Well, I guess there was old Father Bates, you know, Joseph Bates. There were a few oldies amongst them. But mostly they were young people. I mean, Ellen White was probably barely a teenager, right? James White was young. They were all young people, just like you young people today, most of you, will, uh, well, I feel young too, uh, are going to be the ones to carry the light. It seems that God uses the young people. And when you look at the world, when you look at riots and, and the tear gas, and, and they're often university groups. It's the young people that ha seem to have the impact both for good and for bad. So you have a power as a young person that other people don't have. And then we come back as our, our movement is solidified, we gain momentum after the, uh, the great disappointment and we begin to realize what was wrong, that it wasn't in the uh, the proclamation of the message, but the interpretation of what was going to happen. And we had an understanding of the sanctuary message and what Jesus was doing in heaven for us, and that something significant happened in heaven in 1844, not on the earth, and so forth. And boy, there's people that don't even believe that anymore, too. But when we look at Revelation, our very foundational thing, the three angels, here it is in my Bible, it says the message of the angels. Revelation 14, and starting in 6 and 7, and what does it say? It says, then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And then what, is it, what does the angel say next? And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. It's interesting, the ocean keeps getting thrown in there, doesn't it? The earth and the sea. It's talking about creation. The very foundation of our three angels' messages, which is the core of Seventh-day Adventism, is creation and a creator God. It is the pillar that people are losing sight of. So what is it? Holy living, spreading the gospel, living holy, giving glory to him, the judgment message, Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, and then the creator God and the Sabbath, because that's actually almost a direct quote out of the fourth commandment. So, so at the very end of time, the, the fourth commandment is highlighted as the, as the Sabbath takes its appropriate place, the creator God sits right there in the midst of it. So as a Sabbath-keeping people, we should be the strongest proclaiming creation. And Patriarchs and Prophets, 111. It says, like the Sabbath, the week originated at creation, and it has thus, and it has been preserved and brought down to us through Bible history. God himself measured off 
the first week as a sample for successive week, weeks to the close of time. Like every other, oh, listen to this. It consisted of several, seven literal days. Six days were employed in the work of creation. Upon the seventh, God rested. And he blessed this day and set it apart as a day of rest for man. Now, could you be any clearer than that? I mean, could you say anything more clear? It was a week, just like every other week, six literal days, then the Sabbath. That's the pattern and why we're here as Seventh-day Adventist people today. Yeah, I agree. So if you're believing in something else, you've got a problem with the spirit of prophecy. You just do. Uh, and um, the next step, though, is what are people doing? I don't think anybody in the church is denying, well, I don't think so. Well, I don't know. There's probably a spectrum, but a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, a continuum. A lot of people still claim they believe in God, but they're taking on elements of evolution, and they try to mix the two. And I'll mention this a little bit at Morning Manna, and, and that's called theistic evolution, and I'll talk more about that. So uh, they don't claim to do away with God. They just mix truth and error, and they come up with a hodgepodge called theistic evolution, where things evolved, but there's still a God. And I tell you, it, it is really confusing. It makes no sense that, well, what about man and how did that work? And the whole foundation for theistic evolution is that things had to die as, as things progressed. And then you have God in creation saying at the end of each day it was very, very good. And you think, well, but things were dying. You know, theistic evolution is really ridiculous. I mean, it just, it is, it's, it's incompatible, it's, it's inconsistent, and you're gonna get yourself tied up in knots. And that's, so people, I mean, don't be, you know, don't be tricked. People are going to still claim to believe in God, but at the one hand, they're going to be talking evolution in millions of years, and you're going to think, how, how do you recon reconcile this? And you can't because they're irreconcilable. I don't know if that's a word. But Ellen White hits this head on, and I'm reading further down from Prof, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets 111. It was in her day as well. But the assumption that the events of the first week required thousands upon thousands of years, theistic evolution. Well, that's just creation is just kind of explaining something more. I had somebody tell me that once. This, one of my, at the Australian college that I was at, he was saying, you know, well, how would you describe uh, uh, thermodynamics to an aborigine? He was actually using an Australian example. So he was saying if there's a simple person, you know, living out uh, in primitive conditions, and you try to explain the law of thermodynamics. I think that's what he said. So basically he was saying, well, that's why, you gotta be tricky because they use these arguments. That's why, you know, when you read creation, how can it possibly explain what really happened? That's what they say, that's what was said to me. And, uh, and, and the surface, it, it seems to maybe have some credibility, but the point is just read what it says. Of course we don't understand all the intricacies, but God has given us enough information. He's made it so clear that we shouldn't get confused. 
but people get themselves twisted. So this idea, so Ellen White was directly speaking about theistic evolution, that, that each day represented thousands of years or something, strikes directly at the foundation of the fourth commandment. Oh, it's so Sabbath keepers, we should know, right? The fourth commandment, how do you have a Sabbath if everything took millions of years? And that is just kind of a metaphor, that, that, that Genesis is some sort of a metaphor or something. It says it represents the creator of, as commanding men to observe the week of literal days in commemoration of vast indefinite periods, right? Doesn't make any sense, right? How, what, what's the use of the Sabbath if creation took millions of years? Doesn't make any sense. This is unlike his method of dealing with his creatures. It makes indefinite and obscure that which he has made very plain. And she goes on to say that it is infidelity in its most insidious and hence most dangerous form. Its real character is so disguised that it is held and taught by many who profess to believe the Bible. That's why it's so dangerous, because people are claiming they believe in God, and on the one hand, they're talking about evolution and millions of years and things evolving, and you think there's a disconnect here. But, oh, but I believe in God, and, and somehow, uh, Genesis is just kind of poetically explaining it or something. It makes no, they got to explain it away. I looked at the dictionary.com on the internet to see what infidelity meant. It says, want of faith or believe in some religious system, especially a want of faith in or disbelief of the inspiration of the scriptures of the divine origin of Christianity. I thought, well, that's pretty good. Dictionary.com hit it right on the head. So, uh, this whole mess that people are getting themselves wound up in, the foundation is actually losing faith in the Word of God. Well, you have to. You can't believe in the Word of God because the Word of God plainly says who the Creator is, how the world is created. And of course, there's, we only have a, a tiny understanding of what was involved, but God has explained it clearly what He did. Oh, yeah. Now, that wasn't at the Adventist institution. That no, was no, later on. Part of society. Yeah, no, that's true. It's the wine of Babylon. Well, it's, it's the wine of idolatry is what it is. And um, that's absolutely true. And so the point of all this, and we're going to finish up early this afternoon, and that's fine because it's a warm afternoon, is when I looked at starting back what Paul was trying to do to reach those pagan people, what Paul did to reach them is to point them to the creator God, the one God that they didn't know all these other pagan gods they were worshiping. And then as we look as God brings his people down through history and we come back to us, God's people at the end of time with a special message, an integral part of that message is God the creator, God the creator established in the fourth commandment, 
the validity of the fourth commandment because it commemorates creation and honors God the creator and it's going to be a big point at the end of time when the mark of the beast and we have Sunday and Sabbath and you've got to make a choice. Well, it all fits into place. You can't take creation out and have it all hold together. It just doesn't. In Revelation 4.11, which is kind of the title of, I didn't realize, Cosman, our English teacher here, was telling me, I didn't realize here in the U.S. that 411 is an information number in the U.S. You dial 411 and it's information. Well, that's kind of neat because you can dial Revelation 411 and this is what you get for information out of Revelation 411. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is he worthy to receive glory and honor and power? For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We're trying to do it here at Weimar. We're trying to get that balance uh, of a true school where we have the sciences and we, and we honor God with revelation. By the way, uh, a cover for a lot of this is uh, you hear people talking about academic freedom. Be really careful. A couple of things. Be careful if people in the Adventist system start talking about academic freedom. Because, I mean, it's often a cover to sort of kind of think way outside into pagan philosophies. The other point I might just add, for those of you that may be looking for colleges, either you may find yourself in a secular university or you may find yourself in a Christian or an Adventist university or college. If you're looking for principles to base your choice on, if you're in a if you're in a lecture or a class from a Seventh Day Adventist instructor, and you don't know where that Seventh Day Adventist instructor stands on the issues of origins, or he doesn't want to take sides. Man, that is a big red flag. <laughs> you have the right as a student to understand where your professor or teacher stands. You just do. Uh, they, as our general conference president said in his sermon, we need to hold our institutions, we need to hold our administrators accountable. Anybody that's employed by funds from the Seventh-day Adventist denomination needs to support who we are as a people. And it's, again, one of those facades. If, you know, students say, well, you know, I don't, he's presented this. I don't really know where he stands. Why? Why don't, why, why don't you know where he stands? When I, my class, my students know where I stand. I mean, they probably don't, trying to shut me up sometime, probably. But uh, they know where I stand. Uh, why wouldn't I want them to know where I stand? <laughs> so there's all these subtle things that look for flags. If, if they're, if they're talking academic freedom, if they're saying, well, we just present both sides, but we don't, and we let the student decide for themselves. What in the world is a parent spending all their money to send them to an Adventist institution if they're just gonna decide for themselves what they believe? These people, and I'm not saying anything specifically, but we know there's people out there that are promoting and, and toying with evolution or trying to mix in theistic evolution 
are outside the Seventh-day Adventist church and beliefs. We have never changed. We have never changed where we stand as a people on the doctrine and the belief in the truth of creation and God the Creator and God the Creator of the Sabbath. We have never changed. Anybody that's coming out with new ideas, and that's all they are, are doctrines that are outside the belief in the truth of the Bible and it, how it's magnified with the spirit of prophecy. It, that's just the way it is. I mean, it, it, they're going to believe that. They are outside our beliefs as a Seventh-day Adventist people. They really are. They really are. So you can, you can look for those, 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 if you're looking for principles, uh, ask your professor, your teacher, what do you believe? I'm, you know, you're paying the tuition, lots of tuition these days. You deserve to know. Ask them what they believe on creation. See what they say. You can come ask me. I'll tell you what I believe. Well, you know what I'll tell you? Read the literal, literal, literal week and read the creation. That's what I believe. <laughs> that probably says it better than I could. So um, I think we're going to see changes. I think we're going to see reformation as people carry the torch forward and, and people are held accountable uh, because there's a lot at stake. And anybody that causes a young person to lose their faith is in big trouble with God. I mean, they are. They really are. They have a lot to answer for at the judgment. They really do. If someone's causing a young person to lose their faith over Greek philosophies, I wouldn't want to be standing before God if I was that person. I really wouldn't. So God bless you. Uh, uh, we'll close with prayer. If anybody has some questions or want to discuss things, we, I'd be happy to talk to you. I guess we'll have a question and answer time after Dr. DeRosa's, I think it's at 2 to 2.30 tomorrow or something. We'll have a question time at the end of everything. Dr. DeRosa will go on with uh, creation evangelism things now. But let's just, close, let's just stand for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, it is just encouraging as we look down through the pages of history and even in modern times, relatively modern history, as we see the history of us being raised up as a people, your last day people, we can see that right through that and right up till the end of time when we're on the sea of glass at the end of time, we'll be honoring and worshiping you and proclaiming you as creator. And that's just a pillar, Father, we can see that right through all the truths, that you're worthy of worship because you are our creator. And in fact, you're our redeemer and you can recreate us even though from our fallen state, you can you can redeem us, and one day we can stand glorified with you in heaven. And so we look forward to that time. We pray for each precious soul here. Some are students that are, are, are making their maze through perhaps secular or Adventist colleges and universities. May they be aware, may they be on guard, and may they be fortified. May their minds be made up and clear before they're faced with, with uh, subtle and difficult and and, and sneaky tricks that are being tossed out in the field of religion and, and evolution and false philosophies. May they, be, may they be empowered to stand and not be deceived. So we just pray that this, this group of young people, this small group is even, is even a representative group of this great reformation that's taking place through this GYC movement and beyond. May they take the torch of truth forward May it illuminate even more clearly and more brightly so people will see the false doctrines of evolution and Greek philosophies and stand more firm for you. And we just pray that uh, you'll fortify each one of us and that we'll faithfully carry the banner that you ask us to carry in Jesus' name.
Amen.